Hello, and welcome to the Impact Fashion Podcast. I am Chidabem, the host. Thank you for joining me for another week of titillating discussions about fashion and the circular economy. A++, if you get the reference. This week, I have someone I've known for a little bit on the podcast, Belle Jacob. She's a writer, speaker, and activist who you might know for some of her work with Extinction Rebellion. She was part of the team that coordinated the Cancel Fashion Week campaign. Belle and I talked about degrowth, inequality in fashion, and the role of activism in driving change within the industry. I enjoyed catching up with Belle after so long, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Before I go, if you're enjoying the Impact Fashion podcast, please subscribe on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever you listen. If you're especially enjoying it, please rate and review the podcast. I got my first review last week, and even though I should play it cool, I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Thank you to Cabasso for the five stars. I probably butchered your name, but thank you. And now for the episode. Lovely to see you, as always. I guess maybe I wanted to start with a little bit of background. So you worked in fashion traditionally for some time as style editor for the Metro. Um, What was it like to step away from that traditional approach um, to kind of take more of an activist um, approach to fashion? Because I'd spent 13 years as a fashion editor in a very, very traditional sense, um, you know, covering a lot of fast fashion, quite unquestioning about its impact, even though I was trying to promote, promote fair trade and sustainable labels as they were then, you know, there was nothing really very non-traditional about my approach to fashion editing. To step away was hard because it was in so many respects what people expect a fashion editor's life to be quite charmed. You know, I was sent overseas. I had endless amounts of freebies. Um, you're wined and dined. But the discomfort had been growing for, for quite a long time before I left. And uh, I left quite soon after Rana Plaza fell because that seemed to me very much the, the nail in the coffin for me. It was very difficult to continue writing about some of the labels that I was writing about knowing that some of them were directly and indirectly involved in disasters uh, like Rana Plaza, uh, which, you know, killed 1,134 people, all of whom went into the factory pretty much knowing that the factory was on its last legs, but being compelled to do so in order to keep up with the insatiable demand for clothing um, accelerated by the global north. So. I was really uncomfortable with this system. Uh, it seemed to me a culmination of all the sort of issues I'd had whilst I was a fashion editor, just sort of the sheer quantity of stuff coming across my desk was getting pretty insane. And none of it, a lot of it wasn't very well made. Mm. But I had been asked by another uh, interviewer, why did I not make more clear my reasons for stepping away from the role? I think a lot of people were very, very confused at the time. And, um, I would say it's, uh, I'm a mum. I want to spend more time or, but I never, it was almost like it hadn't been totally crystallized in my head why I was so uncomfortable. There was also at the time, not that much support for, for people with these views. It was very much like bad fashion is happening in only isolated places. Um, and we can do better by slightly adjusting uh, the way we practice. But my, my concern really was pretty deep actually um, and I think it's only really within the last two three four years that I've become a lot more vocal mm-hmm. I stepped away from being a traditional fashion editor to launch a website which only focused on ethical labels 
yeah, it was quite a hard move. I gave up essentially a charmed life, but it didn't feel that charmed to me by the end, to be honest. So mm. it wasn't that difficult. It felt like a lot of, if I can quote Catherine Hamnett, um, she would say uh, it's like um, the foam over a bloodbath. And she meant that the foam was all the, the loveliness, but the bloodbath was what was happening, uh, not only to the people trapped within the global supply chains, but also the planet. And I think definitely the environmental impact of fashion is uh, more widely discussed now than it ever was when I, taught, uh, when I left Metro, which is quite interesting actually. How did that feel within the first year, like the first maybe two years of, of leaving, of kind of stepping away from the, 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 what you call the charmed life? It was really disorientating. I mean, I, I think it's probably disorientating for anyone who, you know, by that time I'd spent over 20 years in full-time employment. So to go on a personal level, to go from a very structured life to the life of a freelancer is in and of itself quite odd. Mm. Um, and I spent really a long time after that getting up at eight and getting to my desk at nine, desperate not to lose uh, momentum. Culturally and personally, it was quite an adjustment, but I got to spend more time with my little girl. You talked about Rana Plaza, um, and of course time has kind of gone by since that kind of, I guess, massive event that spurred a lot of action yes. so you know things like fashion revolution kind of were born out of, of, of that um, um tragedy how have things changed since then it was a game-changing moment for for the fashion industry for, for it was that it we went almost overnight from seeing fashion in the way that it portrays itself to be to one that had much greater systemic issues than we could ever believe the the event at rana plaza was very much focused on, on the garment workers. The conversation has evolved um, to encompass all its other impacts. Um, Rana Plaza was the opening of, of the box mm -hmm. and the flood of facts and um, abuses within the system is, is not stopping. Um, every day uh, we're confronted with new inequities embedded in the fashion system and the latest of course was what happened to the garment workers and is continuing to happen to them with the pandemic mm. you know um we you know has rana plaza changed anything that we you know the moment the global north feels threatened we drop the people that make our things at a moment's notice they're still battling to be repaid, they're still battling for some kind of uh, justice. Um, while the Western and the Global North gets back on its feet with vaccines and our shops are opening and our pubs are opening, uh, these are ordinary men, um, but mainly women, um, struggling to feed themselves and their families, even now. So that is a continuation in the narrative of the unveiling of the inequities that are buried within the fashion system. Yeah, and I, I so you actually picked up a point that I was I was going to raise in that how do you foresee the pandemic kind of sh reshaping the conversation? Um, because I guess Rana Plaza happened. There was kind of there was a big shift um, in terms of the the dialogue that was happening, the conversation that was happening, and now the pandemic has happened. And of course, there is a big conversation around the pandemic. We had things like pay up, kind of come to the forefront there were a lot of questions around you know people that were cancelling orders how do you foresee this idea of you know build back better or kind of new normal how do you foresee that kind of looking post post 
post-COVID, if there is ever a post-COVID world? So I think I think the pandemic has reminded us that anything we thought we'd learned from Rana Plaza is not enough. It has made us question an entire system where we have thought that growth, economic growth benefits all. We have now seen that this system does not benefit all and that if any hiccup occurs to the system, uh, the poorest and most vulnerable are, um, are, are, are the ones, the first victims. But there is alongside these um, issues a growing understanding that if we in the global north swoop in and try and fix things in inverted commas, we are simply perpetuating a white colonialist narrative. And there is a greater movement, I think, towards handing back power to the garment workers than I think I've ever seen before. Um, a lot more people are saying you want to help the garment workers support the existing unions and movements on the ground there on the front line. Mm. And I think that is absolutely vital in this debate. Um, it, it sort of intersects with the ideas of decolonization, decolonialization, um, which is now where we start both academics and activists alike really interrogating all the assumptions that we have about our lives in the global north. Uh, which are comfortable, uh, which are safe. When I say safe, I mean this so deeply, you know, we take to the streets and perhaps we face a higher degree of police uh, interventions. In the global south, when they take to the streets, their lives are threatened. So there is this feeling that we have such a responsibility uh, in the global north to the, to the people in the global south. And the fact that these ideas are coming out are absolutely vital. When you mentioned Remake, I absolutely love Remake, the Pay Up campaign. But I also know that it came from a place of really great sort of frustration that this, you know, this had occurred to the, to the garment workers during the pandemic, that it was still occurring. You know, it's been a fantastic campaign. It's very much needed and we need more. But the whole thing about the Pay Up campaign is about supporting and empowering those in the Global South currently fighting for their rights and their lives. Mm. Off the back of that, how do you see the role of activism within um, fashion and how can it, how do you foresee it driving change? So activism, obviously, during a pandemic is quite tricky isn't it you can't really take to the streets um on the upside you know there was a uh, a flood of social media campaigns that were probably like, like the payout campaign which were probably more sophisticated than anything that we've seen before but i do think activism i had this conversation yesterday when i said to someone what is the role of activism in this landscape and the you know the power still of a group of people standing in front of a store saying things aren't right it still has a place. It's a very public facing activity, far more public facing than, for example, a new framework or a new action plan. You're on the street, you're making people angry, <laughs> you're, you're upsetting people's assumptions, um, you're, you're drawing physical attention to, to, to something, particularly stores, you know, they're designed to be these beautiful spaces. And if you've got a group of people outside going, I am so angry with you right now, it really is quite jarring. I think protest by itself it has to be slightly disruptive. And I'm saying this at a time, of course, when the Home Secretary is putting in place all of these limitations. So who knows what's gonna happen going forward. But one thing I will say about the activist bunch is they're endlessly imaginative because they're driven by, you know, as I said, a great sense of injustice and a desire to see a better world. So you talked about we have to be wary um, going forward. What are, your, mm. what are some of your concerns? It's a real balance being to, 
between disruption and just getting in the way of ordinary people. Having been part of Extinction Rebellion, I have been so impressed with its ability to move the conversation forward, to really accelerate the adoption of terms such as climate emergency rather than climate change. Um, being part of um, Extinction Rebellion, the fashion team, you know, with our boycott campaign, with our Cancel London Fashion Week campaign, the physical presence of those, both of those, well, particularly the funeral march that we held for the uh, Council on the Fashion Week campaign, you know, really did have the ability to shake up the industry because it took place at the right time. But like I said, Shadabem, things are moving so fast. You really, in order to really grab this quickening pulse, you, we've got a lot of thinking to do as well. Yeah. You talked about Extinction Rebellion uh, and kind mm. of the, the Council and Fashion Week campaign. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that campaign specifically in terms of what was what was some of the drivers for that and also yeah. what was the response like? Yeah, so Council Fashion Week, I, I would say was probably our most powerful campaign um, because it had, it sort of culminated in that funeral um, on the last day of London Fashion Week, the funeral that led uh, along uh, central London to the site of all the fashion shows. The reasoning behind it was that really it was a sense that people were jetting in from across the world to all of these fashion capitals to watch events that were essentially promotions of the new at a time when the last thing we needed was more new clothing. And it was a request to the fashion industry to utilise its incredibly powerful role in cultural conversations as an art form on social media. You know, I mean, nothing, nothing reaches across circles like fashion. So we were asking the industry to use all of that power to down tools, if you like, and go, we're in a climate emergency, we need to do things radically different. And uh, the funeral march was very visual because we had a lot of support and continue to have a lot of support from within the industry. So we had the fashion people coming up dressed to the nines, carrying skeletons, amazing hats, uh, amazing music, amazing outfits, sort of using the language of uh, fashion to, to challenge fashion. Um, and so it was a moment in time of its time. Um, it came up very spontaneously. I mean, it was almost like we just thought, we got to do this. And it was only really as the campaign progressed that we were managed to really refine and hone all of its reasonings. Uh, just, you know, it was a funeral for the planet. The reception, was uh, for, ranged from cautious to, to quite antagonistic. Um, the British Fashion Council, actually, we met them before the funeral and we told them what we were doing and they were on board in, in you know, and this is one of the dichotomies of, of the fashion world that we, we can talk about. They was quite pleased that um, Fashion Week was being used as a platform for a range of voices. Um, but we also got a lot of, backlash. Um, we got a lot of people saying it's ridiculous, younger brands going, but we've got nowhere else to show, we'll never build a brand without this vehicle. When I say the dichotomy uh, of people within fashion, I think there is a massive awareness within the industry that things need to change. And I think they, there's a massive awareness that things need to change fast. If you witness all the action plans and frameworks, the G7 Fashion Pact, I mean, we're talking about a national, you know, international level. But change is being held back by the system in which the fashion industry operates, which is the capitalist profit-making system. So while we have a very, very dynamic uh, collection of minds in this industry it's it's not moving fast enough because it has systemic issues we're still very 
embedded within old ways of thinking. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I think one of the things that you said early on was you talked about kind of the power that fashion has. Mm. Um, and I wonder, do you think that the fashion industry recognizes the, the power that it has and the potential influence? Oh yeah, I think it does. I mean, it spends billions um, amplifying that power. Um, you know, if you just look at the average uh, high-end photo shoot, it's thousands and thousands of dollars to create this image of itself that it wants to propagate. But I would come back to the fact that at the moment, all of that power and all of that influence, most of it seems to be in increasing the profits of the few within the fashion industry. So you mentioned kind of the system and kind of the fact that mm. you, there's a capitalist drive. Yeah. So at, at the moment, there is a lot of discussion about sustainability and now especially, you know, circular economy within fashion. Yeah. It does appear that brands are kind of making commitments to be better. Um, yeah. What are, what are some of your thoughts uh, about this discussion? Um, okay. So I think, I think sustainability as a term is losing currency. It's too wishy-washy. It's not attached to any kind of concrete notion of what a sustainable future was, uh, is, could be. Um, uh, there's also the question of what do we want to sustain right now because we're destroying everything. So we certainly don't want to just sustain the, the, the it's, just a, it's just a word that's been co-opted and bastardized and has, is now an empty shell. And there's definitely movements to go, it's not enough to say you're sustainable. If you're a sustainable label in inverted commas, you need to be saying, no, I'm a label involved in uh, decarbonization. I'm a label involved in fair trade and uh, empowerment. Or Do you see what I mean? So you have to yeah. specify you, you have to break sustainability down, sustainability down to all those separate components and identify exactly what area you're working on. Yes. Sustainability, a sustainable fashion label of itself is not going to save the planet. And I, I think they pretty much know that. On the other hand, they are best practice. Some of them are fantastic. You know, some of them are working extremely proactively. They've taken on board um, really difficult concepts. They're trying to do the best they can and build a business at the same time. Where we have had issues, and when I say we, I mean the XR fashion team, is that they're not yet challenging the notion of growth. If you replaced all the badly made clothing with only sustainable clothing, you'd still have too great a drain on the planet as it, as it exists now and too high carbon emissions. Just remembering at the moment we're producing up to 150 billion items of clothing a year, most of which goes into landfill, Arguably, we do not need to produce any more clothing, and we could technically keep the world covered in cloth of one form or another for a century going forward. We do not need any more new clothes. But having said all of that, I also think that sustainable labels do have a place to play in showing us what is possible going forward. If we do need to make clothes in the future, how should they be made? And a lot of these sustainable labels are leading the way. So you mentioned degrowth and the conversation around degrowth from kind of the conversations that you're having um, yeah. or, or what you're or kind of you're seeing from some of the work that you're doing. Yeah. What is the response to that dimension Ooh. of degrowth to, to, to fashion brands and businesses? Okay, so yeah, so that's going down well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yes, degrowth is the elephant in the room. I've spent the last few months looking at as many sort of um, roadmaps and action plans as I can. And they are dancing around the idea of having to reduce production of clothing. And even some of the circles that I move in, uh, you know, when I 
proposed the idea of degrowth, there was a lot of hesitancy. It's a very, very terrifying uh, phrase in, in this current society. It seems to imply that uh, what will degrow is our standards of living. So this is um, not exactly in its infancy, but it is coming to the fore. I don't think it's an issue that anyone will be able to avoid in the next six to 12 months. I think um, we are, and when I say we, I'm talking about Fashion Act Now, uh, which is a, a group I'm part of, are trying to drive the conversation by hosting panels. So we had the last panel on Tuesday and we called it Fashion and Degrowth. And there was some thought at the time, do we call it Fashion and Post-Growth? Do we call it Fashion and New Economies? Do we, what do we call it? And we really decided to embrace the idea of degrowth because um, to embrace the term, because we felt that it was jarring enough currently to stimulate conversation, maybe defensive conversation to begin with, but conversation in the long run. It's like, I don't think you can be truly sustainable and keep growing. I can imagine what th those conversations are kind of like, because I think mm -hmm. even from my perspective, I would have questions around. So with degrowth, are we, what are we defining as growth is kind yeah. of, for me, one of the first things that kind of comes to my mind. It's about challenging the idea of GDP as a measure of well-being, where we could see quite clearly that GDP is not improving the planet or even the lives of the majority of the population. The assumption that exponential capitalist growth serves the well-being of all, I think, needs to be challenged. Degrowth cannot be a blanket expression applied to all parts of the world. What essentially most people in degrowth movement seem to be thinking is that this is something that has to apply specifically to the global north. Mm. We have more than enough stuff. We don't need more stuff. Um, but on the other hand, there are emerging economies that definitely need to grow in inverted commas to encompass better healthcare systems for their people. Uh, better educational systems for their people. So, so some people within the degrowth um, field will actually say that you, in inverted commas, encourage growth in some of these emerging economies so that at least there is a better standard of living for a greater proportion of people. I think there's some absolutely horrific stat, which is like the richest 10% of the population is responsible for 43% of emissions, okay? And something like the, the poorest... 10% is responsible for a tiny fraction, you know, a, a single digit percentage point of carbon emissions. We have a problem of inequity here. We have a problem, and there's a report I've been reading from the War on Want. We have to redistribute resources. So yes, the global north are going to be very twitchy at the idea of, of degrowth, but perhaps the global south don't need to be, because there is a recognition in the work of the best um, philosophers within the degrowth movement that the global south still needs to bring itself into some kind of equilibrium so that its people are not reliant on extractivist industries um, led by the, the global north. So degrowth is effectively challenging a system of inequity. Mm. Um, I agree with when you say degrowth, uh, what, what do we define by growth in this? And it seems to be <laughs> material stuff, extractivist structures, um, profit for the few. Because what I would like to see grow in people is a greater sense of responsibility with and harmony with nature and peoples that 
live on the other side of the earth, you know, whose, whose lands we've decimated. There are so many good things that could come out of this. Um, it's definitely an approach that we're trying to take more is to, to paint a vision of what the future could be if it's not based on, I've got to buy a new pair of shoes right now, even though I have 50 already in my wardrobe. I think defining what the growth is, is, is a good question. But at the moment, it seems to be when we say degrowth, it's like degrowing inequity. So I've got, I guess, a couple of final questions. So what are the challenges that you see coming for the fashion industry? Breaking away from um, the current economic systems. I've spoken now to a couple of people within the system confidentially who say uh, there's so much urge and appetite and passion. And then you get to the board or you get to the shareholders and then everything is, is diluted and lost um, and that perhaps a, a label that's trying to do its best is then by the shareholders and the board forced to do something to in inverted commas make more profit maybe launch another label or maybe launch a clothing label if they're a shoe company some people will know who I'm talking about there you know so they're they're forced by this need to make profit to make decisions that run counter to, to perhaps their own personal beliefs in what needs to happen within the fashion industry that is going to be a huge challenge the other challenge is speed that I spoke about, that the changes on the planet are happening so fast that we need to start building in adaptation as well as resilience and regenerative culture. Um, can, you know, if the fashion industry wakes up and goes, right, we're gonna do away with profit, we're just gonna refocus our activities. Are they going to do this at the speed that they need to do it? Are they going to decarbonize at the speed they need to do it? So those are two huge challenges. Um, and, and also encouraging consumers. Some consumers are so fantastic, or shoppers or citizens, whatever you want to call them, ordinary people. But other ordinary people really, really do derive a great source of fleeting psychological comfort from purchase. You know, and that could be, that is a very, very specifically a problem that I associate with rich people in the global north. You know that we are have been trapped into this view that we are what we own you know so how do you begin to address that at the speed at which we need to address it so those are the challenges what, what do you see as the opportunities I'm, I'm going to sound idealistic because it is the role of the both the academic actually and the activists to present the most positive view is that we um, build a better world in that we are not defined by our objects, um, that we um, develop a stronger, deeper relations with the things that we already own, that we embrace things like sharing economies, which also build community, that we um, get back in touch with nature, when I say get back in touch with nature, I mean connect with nature in a way that we've not done for centuries, really. Um, stop seeing it as a resource to be plundered. And, and um, you know, the pandemic has been very interesting in that regard. So if we can somehow potentially take on more of a caretaking role to nature, so we're not extracting and destroying it constantly, but there is industry and jobs to be had in protecting it, nurturing it, restoring it. So I think we have the opportunity for a more and I'm going to use this word really, really with intent, we have the opportunity for a more evolved way of living, of existing on this planet. We have the opportunity to evolve, to become better than we currently are, and to do so with care for the planet, for other peoples who we may not understand their language, but 
quite obviously had just as much validity as we do. How can that not be better? That is my hopes. And that uh, fashion's role in this is that it embraces its, 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 um, its position as a cultural signifier and re reaches all the people that it currently reaches, but with this potential. Thank you to Belle for taking the time to speak with me. And thank you for listening. As I said at the top of the episode, subscribe to the Impact Fashion Podcast if you're enjoying it. Leave a review if you fancy it. And if you have questions or suggestions for future guests, let me know. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Impact Fashion UK, all one word. See you Fridays.